Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be meeting with God's people at this time. Lord, as we look back over this week, as we look back over this year, maybe back 18 months, and, and even some of us back about 20 years, there have been times that we have been stifled in our thoughts. There are times, Lord, when we know that you are God, but we question and we wonder about your timing and your authority. We desperately want a relationship with you, a, a restored relationship, a relationship that will give us rest. But there are so many things, Lord, politics and economics and family and ministry they they seem to crowd out even the most important things in our life lord as we open up your word today we see a group of people who are tired lord we're tired we're tired of pace. We're tired of the pressures. We're tired of the future. We ask you that you would meet us, that you would empower us, that you would give us hope this day. Lord, you're not here preaching at this moment, but you are here. And we have your word. And your word is powerful. And your word teaches, encourages, convicts, and comforts. We ask this day that you would help us understand your great invitation. Lord, we do think back of the tragedy in our lands. And Lord, I, I, I'm sure that everything changed for most of us 20 years ago. We ask, dear God, that, that you would continue to comfort those families. And actually, all families who suffer this grief and this pain of tragedy... We know you are God. I pray this week, Lord, even as we look at some of the ministries around us, some of the churches that are in our area that are proclaiming your word. In many ways, this is a big week for our culture. We pray for Northbridge, who will be celebrating its 20th year this week. We pray for the chapel. We pray, dear God, that you would be with Foxley Community Church. Lord, there are so many others. There are so many other scenarios. We, we ask you that your church would be equipped today, that your word would be powerfully preached, and that your spirit would change us from the inside out. 
We pray, dear God, that as you send out your family in our world, that we would have your fragrance, that we would respond to issues and problems and scenarios differently than those that don't know you. We ask for courage. We ask for strength. We thank you for all those ministries that are happening downstairs and all those teachers who are teaching our kids. We pray you empower them and encourage them and that our kids would love you more every day as a result. I pray for the ladies up on the retreat. They'll be heading back soon. They've had a weekend of communication with each other, conversations with you, challenges. Oh God, I pray that you'd encourage them, bring them back different. May they be better spouses and, and better moms and better people because they've spent time with you. Lord, we are so grateful for all you do for us. And we start off again acknowledging that we can do nothing without you. So work in us. Move in us. And would you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a picture of the ladies who are up north. They're going to be heading back. And honestly, I am excited to be able to hear some of their stories, to hear what God is doing and has done in their lives. And hopefully, as they come back, they will have experienced God in a new and a fresh way. But I'm going to jump into our scriptures. In, in, in Matthew chapter 9 through 11, let me just share this with you. And I'm going to give you kind of a big picture here. But Jesus has been traveling around, well, during the middle part of his ministry here on the planet, announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. If you recall in Matthew, if you have studied that book at all, the first gospel, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives his longest recorded sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Quickly after this time, Jesus starts going around the landscape, and he heals, and he preaches, and he calms storms. But one thing he saw wherever he went were crowds but they looked different to him. They looked like sheep wandering about without a shepherd. Christ looked around, and he saw tired and weary and discouraged people. Christ's heart was broken. I think the scrambling that all of those folks were well, in the process of, and hoping that the Messiah would soon come. Israel wanted deliverance politically and economically, but realistically, the small town carpenter didn't fit Israel's box. 
But we know that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the King. The King that will restore and mend your broken bodies and hearts. The King who will bring order to the chaos of life and bring you rest. The King who will give us significance, direction, and a reason to live. A King who gives both abundant and eternal life through faith. That's why Jesus and the disciples and the Apostle Paul in our study back in Acts, which we just finished, talked about the kingdom all the time. They were excited that the kingdom had been ushered in and God's reign had become abundantly clear. But Christ's generation was confused, helpless, aimless, harried, shepherdless. And if we look around today, and if Jesus were to come today, and he would look out into the neighborhoods and look out into our world, he might see the same thing today. So in these scriptures, in in Matthew chapter 9, right near the end, Jesus, well, he asks us to pray for laborers. He sees these folks. He understands the harvest is ready. They're hurting. They're discouraged. They want good news. So pray for laborers, laborers that will go out into the field, laborers that will be able to share the hope and the encouragement that the king had come. Then Jesus gives some last-minute instructions to his 12 disciples. And he sends them out in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus told them to literally go back into their neighborhoods. Don't try to evangelize outside. And share God's presence and power and wisdom and love with their family, with their friends, with their neighbors. He wanted these 12 to go out and make sure that people knew that the kingdom had come. Now, after the disciples were sent, Jesus leaves to preach by himself. It's actually one of the few times that Jesus did ministry without his disciples. But he had sent them out. He wanted them to be able to represent him well. And if you'd like, you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, it's the first gospel, it's the first book in the New Testament. But Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 1, I'm going to read it. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to the 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. As he started preaching and teaching, the scripture tells us that John the Baptist was in prison. Well, he was in prison unjustly. But he was in prison and he began to doubt. He began to wonder. He said, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? So the scriptures tell us that he sent some of his disciples, John the baptizer's disciples, to Jesus. And just asked Jesus a simple question. Jesus, are you really the Messiah? 
I've been in prison. I've been looking around. Uh, The situation and circumstances look dark to me. I knew the Messiah was going to come. I believed you were the Messiah. But are you the Messiah, Jesus? Now, I would have thought a simple yes or no answer would have been fine. You know, they all come up to Jesus. Uh, Yeah, I'm the, the Messiah. Go tell John. But he doesn't do that. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. All he did was quote what the kingdom of God would look like. And he just wanted John to know. He says, yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, these things are happening. Yes, I am beginning to show what power and authority God has in our world. Yes, I am the Messiah. And then, and this is what's critical, Jesus turns his attention to the crowds that are now forming. And he begins to use John as an example of a humble, faithful servant. Kind of saying, hey, John the baptizer, he's one of my heroes. And talks about him. And then in the next breath, and you can read this all in Matthew 11, he condemns whole cities. He's saying, although John was very obedient, and John represented me well. (laughs) Woe to a bunch of cities. I went there, he went there, he preached, and they rejected the message of God's grace. And because of their lack of response, Jesus then starts speaking about judgment. And then in verse 25 of chapter 11, he changes again his whole, I guess, approach. And he begins to pray. So right before the text that we're going to look at today, we have Jesus going through all these scenarios. The crowds are out there, and he begins to pray. And he says this. He says, God, thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for being in control. This is Jesus talking. Thank you, God, for letting me reveal who you are to others. I can show people what God looks like. And I want to say thank you. And then he says this, I want to thank you for those who learn about you the way children learn about you. Now, sometimes people look at that and say, well, I'm sure that's just a child's um, very wonderful faith, and, and uh, you know, they don't need a lot of proof. They just kind of believe. But I think really what Jesus is saying is that I am grateful for people who learn like children learn. And children don't learn about their dad or their parents through books. Children learn about their parents by being with their parents, by doing life together. It'd be kind of funny if, you know, dad 
was absolutely gone all the time. And, and the only thing that you could share with your children is, oh, let me show you some pictures of dad. Let me tell you how dad does this. Let me encourage you. And we would think that's kind of funny. But what kids do is that as they live life with their parents, they understand their parents' priorities and what's important to them and how they do life. Now, here's what's cool. This sets up Christ's invitation. Today, we started a series called The Greats. We're going to start off with the great invitation. Next week, we'll talk about the great commandment. And the third, in two weeks, we'll talk about the great commission. But this is how Jesus sets up this unbelievable invitation. It's all about a relationship. So here it is. He turns to the crowds. And you can read in your Bibles... Or follow along in the screen. And Jesus said this. Come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. John Peterson helps us understand what Jesus is saying here. He translates this verse like this. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and I'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, Jesus says, and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Now, doesn't that sound good? Because realistically, we are all looking for rest. Jesus notes it. This is not something new. He sees it out in the crowds. And he says, you folks are tired. You're scurrying around. And you're trying to find peace by a quick fix. You try and we try entertainment. And maybe vacations. But isn't that odd that many of us come back from a vacation needing rest? You know? But Jesus has an answer, not just a quick fix. Jesus said this, I see you are weary. I see you are carrying heavy loads. Weary, the word here means tired like a soldier, a wrestler. One who had just got through with a wrestling match. One all soaked with perspiration. Maybe crawling off the mat, giving all of their effort. Not maybe even to move. You're tired. You just had a wrestling match. 
It just took everything out of you. You are tired or burdened. The word here is used like a barge filled with cargo. Barges aren't sleek ve slick vehicles. They kind of trudge along. That's all they do. The crowds were tired. Life was hard and exhausting. Politically, religiously, and economically. Disease and sickness and disabilities compounded the tired. We are tired. It's the number one answer I get. And I'm not even trying to fish for answers. How are you doing? I'm tired. I'm tired. Hey, how, how's your week been? Oh, I'm exhausted. Oh, well, you know what? I have four kids. Two of them have soccer. One of them has, and the list goes on. It's like, oh, it's only two months. So we don't even eat supper till 7.30, and then they go right to bed. Oh, okay. Am I saying that's wrong? No. But what I'm saying is life is hard. Life is exhausting, and we are tired. So this is what Jesus said. It is going to be so refreshing if you understand it. He said, come to me. Life is crazy. Come to me. And by the way, this is an imperative. It is a command. It is written in a strong language. If Jesus were here today, he would say, come to me right now. Don't you understand? You are tired. Now, initially, we come to Jesus because he's our Savior, because his death paid our debt for sin on the cross, and we need to become part of God's family. So we come to Jesus to become part of the family. We do. But once we become part of the family, life still gets complicated and busy and we're tired and so we need to go to him daily he says come to me for soul rest for refreshment for restoration come to me so that your life might be restored you are tired and this is the key you are tired I am tired because I am doing life on my own and then he says something that is so countercultural to us, so weird, so odd, and it was weird back then too. He said, take or lift off the ground my yoke and put it on you. That culture knew what a yoke was. Most of us don't. But we have to understand, really, what a yoke is. It's important. Now, some of you know this, but as I was growing up, uh, I served up at Silver Birch, and one of the responsibilities I had for about five years was a head wrangler. And so I took care of the horses. So I know a lot more about horses than I do about oxen. But this is one thing I do know that teams are more valuable than single horses. They are. Every once in a while, 
we would have the privilege to pull a wagon full of kids or go on a hayride, and we would have one horse do the pulling. <laughs> it, it, it was a strain. It was difficult. But oh my, once we got a team, oh yeah, you, you could not get stuck. You could fly. It just didn't matter. You could do things you never could do before. But one of the things I found out is that it takes a long time to develop a good team. Because in two horses, in a team, there needs to be a leader. One to take charge. You see, the lead horse always sets the pace, always sets the direction. And a bad team is a team that has two lead horses. Or a bad team is a team that has no lead horses. It, it, you will go crazy. They're walking at different paces. One wants to turn left, the other wants to turn right. You train them, you work with them. One has got to do the leading. And honestly, some of you have seen some of the commercials, especially Budweiser commercials, all right? And you see these magnificent animals, and they're prancing all at the same pace. They turn, they do all the different things, and you're in awe. These animals are amazing. And you want to know something? There's one lead horse. That's it. So you can have 20 horses behind them, or, or 19, because, you know, you have to have an odd number. But the truth is, you have to have a lead. You have to have a lead. And all the other horses, if it's going to work well, need to listen to the lead. Now, Christ's audience probably understood his words in light of oxen. But really what Jesus is saying is this. Can I just make it simple? He's saying, you are weary and burdened because you plow alone. Well, Rick, that is wild. Came to church to learn that. But that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, life is hard, but it's better together with Jesus. A yoke is not restrictive. We see it that way. Oh, I can't do my own thing. I can't go my own way. I like my pace. But a yoke is not restrictive. It's empowering. What Jesus said is this. Keep learning from me. Jesus says, let me teach you. Go at my pace. Follow my lead. In fact, the yoke is probably the greatest symbol of what discipleship is all about. It's learning to follow, oops, learning to follow Jesus. Jesus then says, and it almost sounds like, you know, he's, he's pumping his own tires, but he says, I'm humble and gentle teacher. But what Jesus was doing here, the Pharisees, the religious group at that time, kept piling rules and regulations on, and their yoke was heavy. Jesus says, no, you don't understand it. I want to do life with you. I want to walk with you. I want to lead you. It's going to be much better if you have me along. 
Then he said, you, excuse me, then you will keep finding. And, And that sounds like bad English, but that's how it should be translated. If you take this yoke and you put it on, then you will keep finding rest. Experience a restored life. Well, let me just say this. Most of us need a new definition of rest. Rest is not sleep. The Bible tells us that God rested, but God has never slept. Okay, he never slumbers. So it must mean something else. Sometimes we think rest means recreation or pleasure. But in our culture, most of the time it's escape and makes you more tired. Rest is peace with God. Rest is walking with God. Rest is intimacy with God. And to help us even better understand this, in the book of Hebrews... God uses this illustration to help us understand life. Now, way back in the Older Testament, way back when Moses was the leader of Israel, there was a really, really sad story in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Now, most of you know a little bit of Israel's history, but But Israel had become slaves to the Egyptians. And eventually it was time for them to leave this slavery. God chose Moses to do that. And with a series of events, Moses led the children of Israel away from Egypt. But the promise was this, and this was so cool. After all these years of being a slave, I want to give you a land of milk and honey, which doesn't really make us that excited. But to them, what they're saying, I want to give you an abundant land. I want to show you some land where there's going to be amazing fruit. You're going to live in houses. You're going to, well, have a normal life. And I want to give that to you. But in Numbers 13 and 14, and we're not going to read it, but I would encourage you to read it sometime this next week because it is a powerful, powerful story. In fact, it's a story that I'm sharing right now with one of my granddaughters. We've been spending quite a few days looking at Numbers 13 and 14. And she keeps saying, Gramps, can we go faster? I go, no, we can't go faster. We are going to get this because this is really important. God said, I'm going to give you an amazing land, a beautiful land, a land you're going to love. And so Moses sends out 12 spies. That's found in Numbers 13 and 14. And all of the spies come back and say, oh my word, this land is amazing. This is so cool. Look at the size of these grapes. Ah, This is a great land. Ten of the spies said, but we can't go. There's walled cities and giants. Two of them said, we can go. God's with us. They're nothing. It's not a big deal. The Bible tells us that the Israelites listened to the ten. They listened to the ten. God says, I want you to enter a rest. I want you to enter this promised land. And they said, no, there's walled cities. 
and there's giants we don't want to go. So the scripture tells, okay, you win. You can walk in the desert for 40 years and listen to me and learn how to listen to me because you're not doing such a good job of listening to me right now. So if we look at it, God says, I'm going to promise you this rest. But Israel's rest was not easy street. It was an adventurous living with God. God's promised rest was this. I will walk with you through these battles with walled cities and giants. But Israel lacked faith. They disobeyed and walked in the desert. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19. The author of Hebrews says this, So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter the rest. They were not able to enter the land. They were not able to experience that. But if you look just a few verses later, chapter 4, starting at verse 1, is what the scriptures say. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. That's good news, folks. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe or trust God can enter his rest. Look down in verse 6. So God's rest is there for, for his people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God sent another time for entering the rest. The promise of rest for us today, life and peace with God still stands. It's available to us today. But here the scriptures are saying, we can miss this rest just like the Hebrews miss this rest. Folks, this is critical. It really is. In other words, we could be just like the Israelites. We could be on the edge of the Jordan River. We can see in our lives the walled cities and the giants. And we can say, no, I'm not going to trust you, God. Or we can cross over and recognize that God's presence is with us. And that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that we can move forward with power and authority. But there's a word here right up on the screen that troubles me, and it says this, trouble, or excuse me, tremble, tremble. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you today here might fail to experience it. We may not enter the rest. We may not enjoy God's presence. Because of disobedience and lack of faith. And I got to ask you, are we harried today? Are we tired today? Because we are standing at the Jordan and not 
trusting our God to take care of us in the future. Rick, Rick, what about all this pandemic stuff? Rick, Rick, what about all this terrorism? Rick, oh my, what? It's there, folks. It is. But is God's presence enough for you and for me to keep walking? And then if you look at verse 11 of chapter 4, this is what the author writes. So let us do our best to enter that rest. It sounds odd, right? Like, let's work hard to enter the rest. But let's do our best to enter that rest. For if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, Israel did, we will fall. So therefore, let us keep being diligent. Let wor- let's work and experience God's rest, which simply means this. Work hard at making sure you don't harden your heart. Make sure that you increase your faith, that you listen and obey, and that the giants in the walled cities don't discourage you. Now let me try to wrap this up. Because I think if you understand it, you will leave today with wings. But Jesus invites you and me into a relationship. And he asks you to put on a yoke so you can experience rest. And that doesn't make any sense at all. Oh, that means I have to work. That means... No, what that means is you've got to listen. And I've got to listen. Ultimately, this is a call to discipleship. Follow the king. Listen to the king. Be yoked with Jesus. Be yoked with Jesus. You'll never regret that. He is the one that guides and directs. He shares with you the pace that you need. Yoked up means growing in your relationship which actually happens just like any other relationship you have. It all becomes, or it all starts by you coming to Jesus over and over and over again. That you nurture that relationship. That you spend time with your dad. You put it in the calendar. I guarantee you'll never be yoked up well if, well, when I get around to it, I'll read some scripture. Or I'll get around to it eventually. It's so important to get to know your Father. It's doing life together with Jesus. It's talking to Him. I was talking to one of the young ladies right here in our church. And, and basically, he just said, you know, Rick, I just talk to God all the time. I, I talk to God about this. I talk to God about that. I talk to God about... And in my heart, I'm going, amen. How cool is that? God is so much a part of your life that you automatically just keep talking to God about all the different scenarios and situations. How cool is that? It's doing life together with Jesus. But here's another thing. 
I think it's really important for you to understand. I don't think you can do this relationship thing by yourself. I, I don't. Being a pastor and working with other folks, I, I see people get jacked up after retreats or, or mission trips or a week of camp. Oh, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Yeah, I want to listen to Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is so important, man. I'm going to... And in two weeks, they're dead. Two weeks, they came back, and life kind of distracts them. Oh, I work hard. And you see this. You hear it. You, if, if any of you get another shepherd staff for me about a small group, you're going to probably throw up. But I can't say it any other way, folks. You need to be in relationship with others. You need this accountability. You do. You, you can't do this by yourself. This is part of working hard at obeying so your heart stays soft and responsive. It's part of looking at this trembling. Hey, you know what? I need some help here. I need help with walking with God. I need some accountability. I need people to encourage me to get in the Word every day. I need people to ask me, have you been convicted lately? Have you confessed any sin lately? Oh, no, no, Rick, I like living my own, living my own life. That's sad to me. I just got to let you know. Because I don't think you can. Maybe for a short time. Maybe for a little bit. But we need family, community. We need others to encourage us, to spur us on, to share with us, to pray with us, to do life together with us. We have a starter group happening tomorrow night. Oh, if you're not part of a group, if you're not, join us. It's only three weeks long. You'll get a taste of this, what this looks like. And you can do life together with other believers on your journey. They'll remind you over and over how important it is to stay yoked and to be yoked. You begin to enjoy the rest. God's presence on God's presence in the adventure. So many times believers will come to me, oh Rick, you know, I was fine until I got saved, and this problem happened, and this problem happened, and this problem happened. And I will look at them, put my arm around them, and say, Isn't it cool that Jesus is with you? Because I don't know how you could handle it without him. I don't. We need to be yoked up with Jesus. Jesus ends up saying this, my yoke is easy. Well, what does that mean? It's easy to put on. It is. And my burden is light. Not because the load that you're carrying is light, but two of you are doing it. Literally, a yoke is excellent and useful and good 
and helpful and the perfect illustration of what a disciple does. And I just want you to know, this was really good news 2,000 years ago. And it's still good news today. Now, I'm, I'm going to try one other thing just as I end up here. So many of us understand what an unyoked life feels like. We do. Some of you came to faith later in life. Some of you came to faith early, but you haven't been yoked up, and, and it's hard. We've got a baptismal service next week. And what's so exciting is that, is that we're going to hear from at least two people what their life was before Jesus and what their life is after. Are they perfect? No. But all they're saying is this, I want to be yoked up with Jesus. I know that's the right thing. I know that that will give me life. I know I will have energy. I know I will enter the rest. So by the way, if anyone else wants to get baptized, let me know. But here, will you respond to Christ's invitation today? Will you be yoked up and ex- or will you experience the desert? Oh, we want this so much for you. Realistically, Jesus said this, you are going to plow. So plow with me. You are all going to pull a wagon. So why don't you pull one with me? You are all going to travel down a road. You are. Why not let me lead you and set the pace? You will never regret letting me lead you or set the pace. Oh, this is good news. And we as a church want to help you stay yoked with Jesus. Life will be so different. It doesn't mean there won't be hills. It doesn't mean there won't be valleys. It doesn't mean any of that. What it means is, is that you've got Jesus. You go to him every day. You listen to him. You move at his pace. You turn at his will. How cool is that? Come and do life with me, Jesus says. It's abundant, fulfilling, and wise. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for a simple illustration, an illustration that probably bothers most of us. Being yoked up sounds like work. doesn't sound like rest. Being yoked up sounds restrictive. But God, that's what you've asked your followers to do, is walk with you, listen to you. God, some of us haven't been doing that well. We confess that. Some of us need help, Father. I pray that we would ask for that. Lord, we love you. We do. And ask more than anything that you continue to be patient. We don't want to be like those Israelites. We don't. 
that recognize the beauty of a land but were hamstrung because of walled cities and giants. God, you are enough. We love you. We love you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.